Good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you to our church. We're glad you're here. Uh, if you're not new or visiting, it's good to see you too, as always. Um, I hope you're enjoying and having a good Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we don't say happy Memorial Day. I think if you think about it for obvious reasons, right, it's a solemn and kind of somber holiday. Uh, I think it's good, though, for us to remember that sometimes, kind of the seriousness of life and death. And that kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about today. So let's get into it. First Samuel 15. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles there. If you have your Bible, uh, you can go on your phone or, or whatever too. First Samuel 15. We're continuing our series through the book of First Samuel, and we're going to do first and second Samuel. That's the plan. It's all mapped out. Lord willing, we will finish both. Um, but we're doing it in two parts. So First Samuel, we're calling this series After God's Own Heart. And actually, next chapter, the very next sermon we're going to do is the sermon where the, the series title comes from. Okay, because today, God is going to reject Saul from king. Okay, we're done with Saul. I mean, we're not done with Saul. We're going to see Saul throughout the rest of the book. But next week, and actually not next week, because we're going to do something different for the summer. I'll tell you about that next week. Um, but next chapter in the book... We're going to see Samuel anoint David as king. Why? Because Samuel is a man after God's own heart. But before we get there, we're about halfway through the book. This is a pivotal chapter. In fact, I think it's one of the more complex, uh, theologically complex chapters in this book. So hopefully we can finish. Uh, I was telling some guys, I was like, I think I could have done three sermons on this. And they're like, oh my gosh, three hours. They said an hour and a half. And I was like, I don't think I could go that short. Um, but we'll try. I'm just kidding. Okay, I could go an hour 20. It's easy. Okay, so 1 Samuel 15. I'm kidding again, I hope, Lord willing. Uh, but let me get into it. Let's read 1 Samuel, the whole chapter, 15. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the sermon. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you show kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and, the, and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a, mount, a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, 
And, so, uh, and Samuel came to Saul, excuse me, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spread the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which God sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also, or he has also, rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I fear the people and obey their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and it's a heavy text. God, I pray that you would help us to hear. God, even as we read right now, we know that to listen, God, is so important. So, God, I pray that we would listen to what your words say. God, I pray that this time will not be about me, not about us, but about you. And I pray also, God, that we wouldn't just listen, but that we would obey. God, obedience is what you desire. More than sacrifice, more than offerings. So, God, we ask that you would help us during this time. God, we know that listening and obeying are hard, and you know that it's hard for us, that we are weak, we are prone to wander. 
So God, I pray that your spirit, the helper, would help us. God, we pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray that you would be glorified during this time. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When I was a kid, I used to read these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Any of you guys ever read that? Okay, three people. Cool, awesome. I'm glad I'm really connecting with you guys, being really relevant here. I think only a few people, really, a certain generation read Choose Your Own Adventure. I'm kind of outing myself as a part of the greatest generation, the millennials. <laughs> just kidding. Just a joke for you. Okay, anyway. Uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. If you don't know what they are, which is like 90% of you, uh, there were these books that were kind of gimmicky, but the whole point was you were kind of participating in the plot of the story. Okay? So you would be written into the book and you would be given choices on certain pages. Like if you want to go left, turn to page 47, but if you want to go right, turn to page like 56 or something like that. Um, and there would be like these certain like kind of funny plots for kids, right? Like you are a, de- a detective or you're a spy or you're a martial arts master. They, they really milked that one. It was like 50 books on like you're a master of kung fu now and now taekwondo anyway. So there were all these different books. You're going to Atlantis. You're going to space. And you would have these choices. And I really liked reading them for some reason because I think I liked making the choices. So, for example, uh, you know, the first page, it'll say something like, you know, you're a detective. You meet a guy. And he says, follow me if you want to live. Do you follow him? Turn to page three. Don't follow him. Turn to page seven. So I would turn to page three, right? I'd be like, he said, follow me if you want to live. And you turn to page, you know, that page. And then it would say, psych, right? This guy's actually evil. And he threw you over the boat. And now you're dead. So I'd be like, okay, I guess I got to start over. So a lot of the pages were like this, where it just ended in your sudden death. So what I would do is I would keep my fingers on the page with the choices so that I could go back in case I got killed, right? I wanted to succeed no matter what the cost was. Now, uh, some people might say that that was cheating and kind of defeating the whole point of the book. And I would say, hey, it's my adventure, right? It said on the book, it's your adventure. It's mine. Okay. Don't judge me. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, I guess it is cheating, but honestly, I think that that is why I liked it. Okay. It wasn't because I wanted to turn to a page and suddenly die. It's because I like this ability to go back and to change my decisions. If it didn't pan out the way that I liked, I liked being able to change my fate. Now, Just think about this for a second, okay? Go back, kind of pretend you're like me as a kid, but it's real life. Imagine that you could actually go back and change your decisions. What would you change? Imagine if you could change big decisions. You get married, right? This is common for a lot of people. You get married, and you're married for a while, and it's good. There's a honeymoon period, but then you start to drift apart, or something happens, Instead of having, like, the two different options, which are, you know, you could, A, like, work hard at your marriage, stay committed, and push through it, or B, get divorced, you know, kind of a messy solution, but a common one in today's world. What if there was a third option where you could go back in time and not get married at all, or marry someone else? Or maybe you have the knowledge of why your marriage failed, so you could change things and make your marriage better. What if you could change your job? What if you could go into a different field, go to a different college? What if it was a small thing, but a significant thing? What if you could take back one thing that you said that ruined a relationship? 
Or what if you could take a chance where you were too scared the first time? I mean, if you could do this, if you had this ability, what would you change? Because I know that when you talk about this with people, just kind of bantering, everyone's got a ton of things that they would change. And of course, we might say, you know, I know God's sovereign, right? We're, we're all Christians here. At least the Christians here are all Christians here. But really, if you could change certain things, wouldn't you? See, this passage is in large part about regret. Okay, that word shows up three times in this text. And that's why I'm asking you to think about this so that you're prepared. It's about regretting things, choices, decisions that were made in the past. But here's the thing. If you could choose your own life, I mean, the the fantasy of it is that if you could choose, if you could go back like a choose-your-own-adventure book, then theoretically we would never have regrets, right? But we all do. I know everyone here has a regret or two. Real life is filled with choices, and sometimes the choices that you make don't pan out the way that you want many times, and we can't go back. Someone posted on Twitter asking, what's your biggest regret? And there was something so human about the responses. I mean, it's anonymous, so who knows what people are actually saying. Also, everyone was British who responded for some reason, so they had like weird slang that I didn't quite get. But the situations were so human. They were transcendent. Someone said, I really regret I had the opportunity to go on a date with Lionel Richie once years ago, and I didn't do it. And imagine me now, right? I was like, whoa, dude, I would regret that too. Others weren't so funny, right? Someone said, my cousin called once, uh, and she wanted to talk, but I was busy at the moment, so I just talked to her real quick, and then I hung up, and then she committed suicide. I was too busy, and that was the last time that I talked to her. Someone said that they were staying with their mom in a hospital, but they were kind of scared just by the whole situation and by the hospital stay. So they went home at night and she passed away during the night. I mean, these are ubiquitous. Okay, so many people have these life and death regrets. And what they all had in common was if only I knew, if only I could have seen, and now if only I could go back, then I would do things differently. I would change it all. Regrets, right? We've all had a few. And apparently in this text, so has God. It's right here in the passage. We read it. God has one major regret that we read about in 1 Samuel 15, and the regret's name is Saul. I regret making Saul king. But what does this mean when we think about what regret actually is? Because for us, we regret because we don't know the future. We regret because we can't change the past. But God, he does know the future. And he can change anything. So what does it mean that God regrets the king that he put into place himself? And if you're paying attention, if you're someone that's really paying attention to the word and you want to know what it means, what does it mean that in the middle of this, Samuel says, the prophet, that God also doesn't regret? He's not like us. He doesn't regret. So this passage is deep. It's theologically complex, and we could definitely get lost in the weeds, but here's the main issue, okay? I just want to keep it simple. This is kind of laying it out for all of us. The main issue is, who is God and what is he really like? Is he someone that regrets us? Is he someone that doesn't regret anything? What are the inspired scriptures teaching about him, the God that we worship, that we sing to, the God that we're gathered here before 
the God that we are called by his name, what does it say about the plans he has for us? What does it say about the way he feels about us? And what does it say about what he wants from us and for us? See, if you've ever felt like you don't really know God that well, that you don't really have the right kind of relationship, the right kind of understanding. It could be personal. It could be theological. If you ever feel like there's something, something hazy between you and God, I think that this passage could help. So let's get into it. As we do, we'll break this passage down into three parts under three headings. First, the reason, the rejection, and then finally, the regret. We'll build up to it. Okay, so first, the reason. The reason. So, I mean, we read the passage already, okay? There should be no spoilers. You know what's going to happen in the plot. We know that this is where God has it with Saul. He's had enough, right? He's done with this guy. After stripping away a dynasty from him a couple chapters ago, he now strips away the kingdom. He fires him. Okay, Saul is done. The question is, why? Okay, now, when you get fired at work, you kind of want to know why it happened, right? What is the cause? Did I do something? It must have been serious, because if it wasn't serious, you're going to be angry, right? It's unjust. It's not fair. So what is the serious thing that made God fire Saul from being king? And theologically, what is the thing, the, the egregious thing that Saul does that makes God regret him in the first place? Verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, so real quick, set the context. Samuel reappears after a while. He hasn't been around for a little while. We don't know how much time has passed, but we do know that the army has grown a lot. Okay, if you remember that from the reading, it used to be 600 people. Now it's thousands and thousands of people. So it's been a little while. Saul hasn't really been talking with Samuel as far as we know. And yet, even though Saul has been king for a little bit, he's still a man under authority. Okay, that's what the first verse is setting up for us. Even though Saul is king, God is still in charge. And because Samuel is the true prophet of God, Saul must listen and obey whatever God says through Samuel. So understand the situation. God is saying something, Saul must pay attention, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, real quick, the Amalekites, who were they? They were this this semi-nomadic tribe, kind of this nation, but they were kind of like in these different tribes of people, they lived south of Israel, kind of southwest along the Mediterranean. Now, if you know your geography, you know Israel's up here, Egypt is down here. Okay, so when they went to the promised land, they traveled north. So the Amalekites are in between. And what happened was the Amalekites were the first people, they were the first country to oppose Israel after the Exodus. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so they're freed, right? The people of Israel are freed from Egypt. They're, they're going to the promised land. And then all of a the sudden, they have their first real-world enemy, the Amalekites, who want to kill them for some reason. Exodus 17, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If you go back to Exodus 17, this is what you read. The Amalekites attack. They're the first enemy. And God says that we're going to have war with these people from generation to generation until they are utterly blotted out. Now, he's calling upon Saul, finally, years later, to finish it. Now, think about this real quick. Okay, think about what I just read. Okay, what I just said. Utterly blot out. I want you to devote to destruction, specifically man and woman, child and infant, and all the animals. If you know God at all, this should give you pause right away. Even before we get to the regret stuff. Okay, what is going on here? Isn't God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? He is. Exodus 34 says that verbatim. Doesn't God so love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life? That is the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. That's in the Bible. It's crystal clear. So what's going on in this passage where it seems like God is calling his king to commit genocide, and when he doesn't do it, he gets punished? See, it's passages like this that give people problems with God. I think we got to acknowledge that right away. Uh, people that you're trying to evangelize. Maybe you've had this experience. You're trying to share about God and forgiveness and the gospel. And they say, well, what about how God tells people to like wipe out whole nations and, and kids and stuff like that? Has that ever happened to you? Like, what do you say? And then, of course, the militant atheists, right? They, they point to passages just like this one. And they say, see, God isn't good. Right? How could religion be good? It's violent, it's evil, it's contradictory. And then, of course, as Christians, too, as believers, we struggle with this. What are we supposed to do with a passage like this where it seems like there's contradictions, where it seems like God is, is different than what we thought, what we were taught, what we teach our own kids? Some commentators over the years have tried to explain it away. It's interesting. Like one guy said, well, you know, it's just the Old Testament, you know, it's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God is different. But I mean, I quoted Exodus 34 for a reason, right? Exodus 34 is Old Testament. It says that God is gracious, that he forgives. So what's going on there? Someone else said, well, you know, the Israelites, they just didn't understand God that well. They didn't know God's love. That's why they did this thing. But if you read the text, it's not like the Israelites had this bright idea. Who told them to do this? It was God. Here's the truth. The same God who is merciful and gracious, Exodus 34, is the same God, same passage, if you go to Exodus 34, that says he by no means also will clear the guilty. He is gracious. He will forgive. And yet at the same time, if you are guilty, he will make sure that you get judgment. God is a God of perfect justice. And God is a God who deals with evil, with sin. How? By holy wrath. That's what we see. And you and I must wrestle with this if we're to live up to our stated goal at Zoe of being a church that's only about the Bible, right? Because we're not really about anything else, right? It's not like we're about like the best this or about the best that. We're a simple church. We just want to be about the Bible. So what happens when we come to a passage like this? We got to deal with it. Can't skip over. Usually I make Eric preach the hard ones, but this time I was like, well, he was on sabbatical, so I'll try to do it. God is a God of wrath. I think the, the person that really helped me understand this, this the most was this theologian named Miroslav Volf. Anyone ever heard of him? 
He's a big choose-your-own-adventure writer. No, I'm just kidding. He wasn't. He was actually a theologian. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. I think he, he, he's a professor at Yale right now. I don't agree with everything he, he's ever said. So if you look him up, he might be pretty different than us in some ways. But when it comes to the wrath of God, this guy really understands it. And part of it is his own background. Okay, so his name, Miroslav Volf, he's actually from the Balkans. Okay, he's Croatian. Uh, and his family grew up, he, he was born there, he moved to America, but his family was there. And if you know anything about your recent history, you know that this was one of like the craziest places in the world in the past like 40 years. Right? Civil war, like ethnic cleansing, all of, the, all of this violence and vengeance and, and people going against other people and then retaliation and so much bloodshed. And he said, you know, people have a problem with a God of wrath. Right? We're like, oh, isn't God loving? Doesn't God forgive? Isn't God gracious? But he said, those things don't have any meaning unless God actually punishes evil. He says, think about my people, like my own family. He's like, I, I talked to them and we have people, you know, brothers who were killed, right? Sisters who were raped. We have houses that were burned down. Like when you think about that, it fills you with this rage. This is wrong. This was evil. This happened to us. And he said, what happened to his own people is that they got revenge, and then they got revenge on their brothers and sisters and houses, and then they got revenge back, and it just cycled and cycled until it spun out of control. But he said, you know what helped me is understanding that God is a God of divine vengeance, because God is actually good. He said, basically what he said is so many people want to believe in a God of love and forgiveness and grace, and he is that. But there is evil and sin in this world, and God would be negligent and callous if he didn't do something. And the good news is that he actually does. He says, you got to flip it. Your context is wrong. The, the whole perception that you have of how God is is wrong. God wouldn't be good if he didn't deal with evil. You know what the Amalekites did? If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 25, I'm just going to show you this because I think it is difficult. So I want you to see what the Bible actually says, Deuteronomy 25, just a few books before. <clears throat> verse 17, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. You guys there? Okay, so verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt. Okay, we might not know exactly what they did, but it says so in verse 18 right here. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Okay, so the Amalekites, what did they do? They attacked these people who were not soldiers, right? They were freed slaves. And not only did he, they attack, you know, like the strongest, you know, the warriors, the people in the front, attack Moses, attack Joshua. No, they attacked those in the tail, right, of the tail, meaning they went for the weakest in the back, the slowest people, the sick people, the old people, the children, the weakest. They went after the people that you should never go after, verse 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget." Go back to Samuel. See, this didn't come out of nowhere. This came out of something horrible. 
This isn't just random vengeance or violence. This is actually divine justice. And as we see, it's not that these current Amalekites are just taking the punishment for the sins of their fathers as if they had nothing to do with each other. From what Samuel says, it seems Agag still walks in these things. So you got to view it from the flip perspective. Okay, you're like, okay, why is God just doing this all of a sudden? No, it's actually the other way around. God decided to destroy them 100 years ago. He's given them this long to repent. They haven't done it. You remember the Ninevites? God said, I'm going to wipe you out. You got 40 days. He only gave them 40 days. And what did they do? They repented and God relented. See, this isn't the random impulse of a bloodthirsty deity. This is the precise and necessary swing of the sword of justice. God intends to deal with people who must be dealt with, and that's what he tells Saul to do. Now, this is all set up, okay? I know that that was long, but people have a problem with this. I understand. So what does Saul do? Saul is given this difficult task. What does he do? Verse 7, it's almost anticlimactic. He just defeats them. He gathers up the army, and he just destroys them. He wrecks them pretty thoroughly from Havila, and we're not exactly sure where that is, but we know the general area, somewhere in Arabia, kind of Ishmaelite territory, all the way east of Egypt. So if you look at the map, this is basically the entire Sinai Peninsula. He chases them down, every single tribe, and he defeats them all. Saul fights the Amalekites, and it's a thorough victory. But verse 9 But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. What did God say? He said, save the best for yourself. He said, don't spare anything or anyone. This wasn't a failure due to weakness. That's why it talks about how widespread his victory was. It wasn't that he failed because he wasn't strong enough. It's not a failure due to compassion either. It's not that he saves the weakest because he's like, well, what did these kids do? He saves the king, their wicked leader. I mean, if you think about it, there's probably only a couple of reasons why he would do this, but most likely it's a show of pride. Right? This is my victory over, over war. It's not like some random person killed him accidentally. We captured him alive. That's how strong we are. And he saves the best of the spoils. Anything he considered despised and worthless, he destroyed. And this is the reason. This is the reason why God rejects him. This is the reason why God regrets making him king in the first place. God commanded Saul to be an instrument of divine justice. Instead, Saul made it about himself. This was supposed to be a holy war. Saul made it a human war. And for this, Saul loses the kingdom. Now, let me ask you a question, and then we'll move on quickly now. But let me ask you a question. What do you think about all of this? On both levels, right? What do you think about the whole Amalekite thing? Sure, they were cruel, okay? And they did unspeakable, horrific things. But did they deserve to be exterminated completely? And then think about Saul. Okay, Saul, right? He, he didn't listen completely. He didn't follow instructions. But you could like spin it a little bit, right? You could say, well, at least he won for the most part. I mean, they're not going to be taking on anyone anytime soon. At least he, he kind of did it. And it's not like he like saw like his neighbor's wife bathing and stole her and then had his neighbor killed. I mean, you're going to get the kingdom taken away for this? I honestly think we're supposed to be kind of like shocked by this. If we're really hearing this, I think we should be wrestling with this because the truth is, as human beings, we need to learn about how holy God actually is. You don't see a lot of people 
who just know it theoretically, automatically, right away. You have to learn it. You have to see it. Human beings naturally underestimate the utter holiness of God. But what does the Bible say? Habakkuk 1.13, we did Habakkuk last year or two years ago, or I don't even remember now. But it says, God's eyes are too pure to even gaze upon evil. He doesn't even want to look at it. Hebrews 12.29, this is the New Testament, says that God is a consuming fire. So here's the thing. Okay, again, flip it. If God is all-powerful and all-good, why should he tolerate anything against his will? What is our answer to that question? Why should he allow any rebellion to go on? Why are we shocked when he does what is actually right, when he does what he actually said he would do? Let me tell you a story in the New Testament. One of the craziest stories in the New Testament, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know them? Right? All these people are selling their stuff. They're giving it to the church, the brand new church, early church. And Ananias and Sapphira, they actually sell some of their property. They sell it to sacrifice it to God, to Christ, to the church. They sell it, and they give part of the money to Peter. But they tell him it's all of it. And Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit and Ananias and Sapphira die on the spot? I mean, I zoomed through it a little bit. There were stages to that. But they died that day. And I think that story, out of all stories, shocks us. There's no, okay, well, that was Old Testament. It was weird back then. All they did was lie. They did actually give some money. They didn't give all of it, but they did give some. And yet God kills them on the spot. It shocks us. But didn't God say that the fair wage of sin is death? And I was talking to a brother in Zoe this week. Literally this week, and he said something that stuck with me. He said, sometimes I think, how am I even alive considering the things that I've done? And maybe he was talking about like he was like living a wild life and how did he not get in a car accident or something like that. But I think he meant this theologically too. Like, why did God allow me to live considering what I've done in my life? And that's it. This is what you and I, everyone deserves for even the quote-unquote smallest sin. And if we don't start to get this, we'll never truly know who God is. If you have sinned one time, then you don't deserve to be here. And I don't either. And this leads to the second point, the rejection, the rejection. The judgment on Saul is swift, but it happens behind closed doors first. Verse 10, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Saul repented in the wrong way. Okay, repentance is turning around. He turned away from following God. That's what sin is. See, we're already starting to, to see kind of from God's perspective why this is so bad. It's not just, you know, a little thing. There's no such thing as a white lie that God doesn't care about. It's not like no one died, so it's no big deal. It's not a funny thing to joke about sin. Every single sin, no matter what it is, is turning away from God. Every sin creates separation from God. Sin, even a single drop of it, is lethal. God doesn't see Saul's partial disobedience as pretty good, good try. He sees it as Saul turning away. And Samuel is angry. Interesting it says that. We don't know why he's angry. Maybe he's angry about what Saul did. Maybe he's angry that God is going to, you know, make him deal with this. And he's like, I knew this was going to happen. He cries out in prayer all night, verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument 
look at this, for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Right, you're starting to get a picture of what's going on here. Presumably Samuel heads to where he thinks Saul is, but someone there says, oh, he's actually not here. And by the way, he made a monument to himself, and then he went to Gilgal. Saul is revealing who he is. And here's something for free, okay? If you listen to people talk enough, and if you watch their lives long enough, they will tell you and they will show you who they are. Saul is showing us who he is. Verse 13. So Samuel goes to, to where Saul is, and Samuel said to Saul, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Samuel's like, Why are you treating me like an idiot? God said, No sheep, no oxen, nothing, and I can literally hear them right now. Saul's sin is blatantly obvious to Samuel. And yet pause here for a second. Do you see the tension here a little bit? Do you see kind of how they're coming at you know, from two different angles, Samuel and Saul? But Samuel's like, it's obvious what you did. But what did Saul say first? He said, I have obeyed the commandment. Okay, so maybe he's like this Machiavellian, like evil genius, and he's just lying to Samuel. But it sounds more like he actually thinks that he did it. He doesn't realize that what he did is so bad. As the fame, uh, famous physicist Richard Feynman once said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Read the scriptures. You think people always see themselves in the right light? Of course not. People are always boasting right before they fall. People are always thinking that they're better than they are right before they fail. Human beings have an enormous capacity for self-deception. We endlessly justify ourselves. I remember I was at a work meeting years and years ago. This is before Zoe. Okay, it wasn't me and Eric in this meeting. But our boss came in, and he was like, okay, we're going to have a meeting, and I'm just going to say this generally, okay? So you can just apply this to your life, whatever. He wasn't, I mean, that's like Christian speak, but he said, the general idea is some of you guys need to work harder. Okay, you guys don't work hard enough. I know a lot of you are trying Okay, I don't want to like embarrass a couple of you in front of everybody, but all of us, we need to look at ourselves and see if we're working hard enough at this job. So after this meeting, it's kind of intense. I go to lunch with my friend. We go to pick up lunch. And he's like, whoa, that was an intense meeting, huh? And I was like, yeah, it was. And uh, I was pretty sure the boss was talking about him, to be honest. <laughs> he was like, you know, we should all work harder. But he's like, but me personally, I feel like I do work pretty hard. He's like, so, I mean, I don't know who he's talking to. And I was like, it's you, man. You are the man, right? That's what I was thinking. Um, and I was just like, yeah, man, cool. Sounds good. But the funny thing is, the actually funny thing, okay, it's not that uh, it was him, per se, but the funnier thing is that I never thought for a moment that it could have been me. Isn't that funny? In my mind right away, I was like, it was him. He's the one, right? He's the guy who's betraying our whole company. I never thought back then that maybe the boss was talking about me. Didn't even cross my mind. Of course, I'm a good worker compared to all of these bums. I didn't say that. But that's how we are. How many of you have heard a sermon and you thought, dude, this applies to so-and-so? I wish they were here to hear this. Who did God sovereignly bring to hear it? It was you. I mean, whoever it is, you know, whoever it is, we're always thinking it's not us. So think about yourself, right? Are you a good husband? Are you a good wife? Are you a good parent? 
a lot of people judging parents, are you a good parent? Then what is the sound everyone else hears, right? To kind of borrow the language here. How can people hear you like yelling at your kid in anger without self-control? How can people hear you bickering with your husband or wife all the time? Are you a faithful friend? Maybe you think so, but how come everyone hears your gossip all the time? You get the picture, right? And it gets worse. Saul has excuses upon excuses. Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spare the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice a master class in digging your own grave. They brought them. It was the people who spared the best. Blame shifting. Okay, blame shifting never worked. You think it worked for Aaron when he made the golden calf? Oh, they just gave me gold and I threw it in the fire and now came this golden calf, not my fault. Or Adam, it was the woman, God, you gave her to me. That's why I sinned. It didn't work then, it doesn't work now. But Saul is advanced, okay? He has a double attack, not only blame shifting, but he also spins it. He says, but, okay, they brought it, but the reason why is because we were going to sacrifice it to God. That's why we didn't obey, because we had a better idea for the glory of God, man. But here's the thing. When we get called out, even if it's not in direct confrontation, let's say it's in a sermon or we're reading a passage in the Bible on our own, do we follow the path of Saul? Because I think it's easy to look at this and be like, what's wrong with this guy? But I think that this is human nature. This is what we do. Right? We're like, okay, I know that I work maybe a little too hard sometimes. Maybe I check on my finances a little too much. But the reason why is because I want to be a good steward. I want to provide for my family when I'm gone. I want to make sure they're comfortable. And I'm going to give a lot to the church. Now, that could be true. And if that is, that's great. But are you lying to yourself? I'm not greedy. I mean, I am greedy, but for the glory of God. God knows the truth. We can trick everyone, even trick ourselves, but we cannot trick God, for God looks at the heart. And Saul just keeps going on and on. He's saying these things. And I love what Samuel says. He just says, stop. Okay, no one wants to hear this. Please stop. That's enough. Let me tell you what God said. Though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You had a responsibility. Now, I've said this before. I think Saul, one of the things going for him was that he was humble. He wasn't power hungry. I think that that was good. But you have to understand that even if you're little in your own eyes, the responsibility is still yours. The responsibility is yours. Saul, in not taking himself seriously, also didn't take the role seriously. And you might be, well, I'm not just, you know, I'm not really a strong leader. Are you a husband or not? That's it. Oh, I'm just not, I'm just not a very, like, loving guy. Am I a pastor or not? Am I going to do it or am I going to quit, you know? Samuel is like, aren't you the king? You are in charge. You have the responsibility. And there are things that go along with that. Verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Why, why, why? And I honestly think he's not being sarcastic here because the text has indicated, has hinted, that Samuel was always rooting for Saul. From the beginning, he really liked Saul personally. He saw him as a good kid. He didn't want Saul to fail. He wants to know why. Didn't you just do it, man? In verse 20, Saul gives the worst possible answer. Why did you not obey? And he says, but I did. 
And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, which God didn't tell him to do. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice the Lord your God. Correction, right? That's what Saul is saying. Correction, I actually was right. I don't even know why you're asking me this. I was trying to gaslight the prophet of God. And also, P.S., it wasn't me. And P.P.S., if it was me, it was for God. Just the same old thing again, covered every base with an excuse. Verse 22, Samuel says, here's the deal. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And that's just it. That's just it. The thing that God wants the thing that we can't compromise on is just doing what he told us to do. That's why Zoe, and I know I beat this drum a lot, but that's why simple obedience in the small things is so important. It'd be great, you know, if we did great things for God, you know, like if we were using our gifts, maybe if we started a movement, maybe if we influenced the world for Christ, but if you're not listening to God, what is that for? You think God delights in that? We get it twisted. As long as I do great things for God, I can get away with obeying in the small things. I disobeying in the small things. That's not how it works at all. And I was reading about this pastor this week, and he was totally doing this. He had an affair, right? And basically what happened was he, he got into this relationship with this woman, and what he kept saying was, you know, like I've given my whole life to preaching, you know, to the work of the ministry. I'm so lonely, right? I have no connections with people because I work so hard. And that's why our, like, talking and our relationship, which eventually became an affair, was okay. I mean, he's lying to himself. He's lying to her. But that's how we justify it, right? I mean, <clears throat> we, we say, you know, I know that I'm kind of disobedient in this way. That's why I'm going to pray more right? I know I'm disobedient in this way. That's why I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to serve more. God would rather have our obedience to what he says than sacrifices he never asked for. Mark it down. Hear it, please. God would rather have our obedience to what he says than sacrifices he never asked for. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Listen, rebellion is as divination. Do you hear how crazy that is? None of us would go to like a, a witch or something. We, would, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't go to a fortune teller to find out the future. But we would gossip. We would lie sometimes. Maybe we get angry sinfully. And we don't care. Imagine if I told you, right, like, oh, this week, you know, I lost my patience a little bit. Everyone would be like, well, you know, at least you're human. But imagine if I told you, yeah, I went to a witch this week. It was really awesome. You'd be like, get this guy out of here. Forget this guy. Little sins, quote, unquote, are serious to God. And therefore, the math doesn't check out. Run the numbers. You can't overcome your little sin with great sacrifice. I'm a terrible spouse, but I make up for it because I serve so much. I'm a pugnacious and ungracious person, but I make up for it with my zeal for the truth. I'm an incessant complainer, but I make up for it because I share the gospel too sometimes. No, man, we get it twisted. 
And at the end of the day, Saul didn't listen. And in not listening, he rejected God. And therefore, God rejected him. To disobey disqualifies you. And this leads to the last point. We'll do it quick. The regret. The regret. We've been building to this point. Okay, so let's bring it to a close. Verse 24. Saul finally says, I have sinned. But again, there are reasons, excuses, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He damns himself with his confession. The reason why I sinned is because I didn't fear God. I feared the people. Then he says, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. What was the crazy thing that Jesus said again? Do you remember that made everyone go, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He said, your sins are forgiven. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? What does Saul say? Samuel, forgive my sins. This guy's not even thinking about God. Do you see that? Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And there you go. We know that God regrets Saul. He told Samuel directly. So why does Samuel say this? Why does Samuel say this? I regretted making Saul king. The Lord, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. What's going on? I think the first thing that you think is it must be a different Hebrew word. It's not. It's the same word. So maybe it's a contradiction. Maybe the author for Samuel forgot what he just said before and then he forgets again later. As one uh, pastor said, the first rule, let me read it. We must keep in mind one of the great principles of biblical interpretation. The author was not completely stupid. Okay, we shouldn't jump to that, that this guy's just a dummy. He forgot what he said. What is he getting at? Samuel is not making this up. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament, from the Torah, Numbers 23. And what happens in Numbers 23 is Balaam, this false prophet, is hired by a king to curse Israel. Do you remember the story? He's like, curse them. So he's like, okay, I'll do it. So he goes up, you know, to see Israel, and he tries to curse them, but God hijacks him and makes him bless Israel. And it happens again and again and again. And it's actually Balaam speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking through Balaam that said this, God is not a man that he would lie or have regret. And that's the key. God is not a man. See, for us, we regret because we, if we knew something different, right, if we could go back We would change it to make it better. But when God regrets, it's exactly what he wanted the whole time. Now, how do we know this? You go to Genesis 6. You don't have to turn there for the second time. But in Genesis 6, this is the only other time where it says that God regrets in the Old Testament. You know what happens in Genesis 6? Noah's flood. It says God regretted making man upon the earth. He regretted all of it. And yet, what do we know when we flip ahead in the Bible? That there was a plan of salvation? That you and I, if you are Christians, your names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve were even created. See, there was a pastor that I used to listen to, and he used to always say this. He might have stolen it from someone else, but he used to always say that history is his story. Okay, do you get that? It's kind of corny, but history is his story. Everything that's happening in reality in this world, this is God's choose-your-own-adventure. The thing is, he's doing things exactly the way he wants all the time. Who wanted Saul? God. 
God knew Saul was going to fail. You remember Eric preached on the eternity of God in our Theology Proper series. You can listen to it again. I think it's our most viewed sermon of all time. So popular. Uh, and for good reason, man. It was a good sermon. But listen to it if you want to hear about it. God is eternal. Hey, God knows what's going to happen in the future. God is there. So what does it mean when it says that God regrets? It's saying that God actually cares about what we do in the moment. It's not talking about God changing his mind, wanting to do something else, because he would have done that if he wanted to do it. What it's saying is God, the way he feels about your sin, is the way that we feel when we mess up our lives. Our sin causes God grief. God is not impersonal. It's not like we just do bad things and it's like, oh, well, I'll just confess and I'll be good. God is a real person. Of course, he's a different kind of person than we are, but God is personal. And when we sin, we grieve him. We grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. Saul persists and Samuel relents, but Samuel takes care of what Saul didn't. If you look to, uh, to verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag before the king or bring here, uh, be, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It's graphic, but Samuel just did what Saul failed to do, which is what the Lord commanded. Samuel closes this chapter with obedience. See, what we're seeing are the two twins of God's eternity and God's personality, his closeness with us, the two twin truths, these ideas that we hold in tension, that God does exactly what he wants all the time. Read Isaiah 48. Read read the whole Bible. You see that God, he does what he pleases. Everything happens according to plan. He is sovereign. And yet at the same time, he actually cares about what happens. The things that we do matter. Verse 34, and Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here's what we have to understand. God regretted making Saul king. And God can regret you and I. Not saying that, you know, there's alternate timelines or anything like that. What I'm saying is what you and I can do in our lives, we have the capacity to truly grieve God. God hates sin. He grieves over it. God doesn't sweep any sin, no matter how small, under the rug. And this is why it's so crazy when the Bible says that before the foundation of the world also, the Lamb of God was slain. God knew that mankind would be so wicked that he would destroy it with a flood. God knew that his handpicked king would be terrible and he'd have to remove him. God knew that his next handpicked king would take Bathsheba and have Uriah killed. God knew every single sin that you and I would commit. But if you're a Christian here, he sent Jesus to die for your sins even though he knew that. That's the crazy thing about God's regret. It grieves him. It hurts him. It offends him. And yet, he came with salvation. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He never disobeyed. 
not one jot or tittle, right? Not a single word. He did every little thing that God wanted him to do. He was the only innocent person who ever lived, and yet he died. And how did he die? He died on a cross. It was excruciating. It was torture. And more than that, he bore the wrath of God, divine vengeance upon himself. Why? So that sinners like you and I, who have done many regrettable things, could be forgiven. God knew Adam and Eve would fall in the garden. He knew you and I would sin in a myriad of ways. Jesus paid it all. So what will we do? That's the question. What will we do? Another thing about the Bible, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure book. Okay, We can't just go back and change the things that we don't want. But the Bible tells us exactly who God is and how God works. And if you're a Christian here, if you understand the things that I've just been talking about, that the Bible's talking about, about divine vengeance, about regret, but you understand that Jesus loved you and died for you, then how are you not going to live a different life? That's it. Let's bow our heads together. Usually, we want to give you guys some time. I haven't been giving you guys a lot of time lately, but I want to give you guys some time to pray and to respond to God on your own in prayer uh, silently. I know some of you guys are convicted. You know that you're not living for God the way that you should be. And the, the lesson of this text isn't, oh, well, you know, it's just, that's just what, what happens. God has allowed you by grace to be a different person. You can repent. God has given you his Holy Spirit that you can change. So whatever you're doing, whatever you've done, that's grieving God, that's regrettable to God. Now's the time to repent. Saul could have repented. He didn't do it. But if you're here and you have ears to hear, you can. Father, we come before you as wretched sinners. We are not better than Saul. God, naturally, not at all. God, he is a person with a nature like ours. So God, we we come before you with our sins and our failings. We ask for your forgiveness. We want to turn away from these things. God, and we look to your grace, knowing, God, that you receive the brokenhearted. God, I pray that you would help us to be different. God, we don't want to be people that grieve you, that grieve your spirit. So, God, I pray that you would help us to live differently. To think about what is regrettable to you and not just to us. And I pray, God, that we would live for you by your grace and by your power, for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.